Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. You are tuned into our OITE slash our board review series where we are trying to go over some just high yield topics. And you're tuning in spine featuring myself and Dr. Woolwine. I did not mean for that to rhyme, but it did. <laughs> if this is your first time listening to this podcast, again, welcome. This is our review series. We typically have weekly episodes featuring either interviews with different orthopedic surgeons or one of our citations classic episodes with one of our new teams, which are all doing such a great job breaking down these kind of classic articles. But without further ado, let's just go ahead and hop into today's topic, today's episode, and let's do some studying together. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. We we talked about the non-op treatment for these patients, and let's say they they failed non-steroidals. They they've had a couple injections, and they've tried eight weeks of dedicated physical therapy. Um, but they come back and they say, you know what, I'm either the same or worse. Uh, what are what are some indications that we would want to actually operate on these patients? Yeah, so something similar, kind of what you were just saying. So patients that just continue to have symptoms despite their non-operative management, like you send them to therapy, you send them to, you give them NSAIDs, they may even got an injection. They've done this anywhere from six to 12 weeks and they still have symptoms. Uh, that may be somebody that you could consider um, operative intervention or doing some surgery on. And, and another uh, indication would be anybody that has worsening neurological symptoms. So, you know, they're starting to get, you know, motor weakness and um, their symptoms are getting a lot worse. That would be somebody who you may indicate for uh, surgical intervention. And, you know, since we're talking about surgical intervention, what are some of the surgical options for patients with cervical radiculopathy? Uh, one of the big ones that um, we see in residency and a, a, actually a fair amount of patients have because a bunch of people get this sort of disease is called the ACDF. Um, and that's an anterior cervical discectomy infusion. And so what you're doing is you're going through the, the neck through true fascial planes. Um, we're not going to go over those because you really won't be tested on the surgery technique necessarily. Um, but what you're doing is you're accessing the cervical spine from the front and uh, you're removing the herniated disc from anterior to posterior obviously you're being very careful as you move more posterior because you're getting closer to the uh, dural sac um, you're excising any osteophytes and you're really clearing out those uh, uncovertebral joints that I was talking about or those most lateral aspects of the vertebra and then um, most commonly these are uh, grafted and then fused with an anterior plate. You can have just one level fused. You can have multi-level fusions. Um, I've seen uh, it was more common that we did two level fusions um, where I trained and I don't know if that was for any particular reason or if just a bunch of patients had two level disease. Um, the uh, I'm not entirely 
sure what an ACCF is. I, I haven't ever actually ever heard of that. But um, the posterior approach is used to relieve uh, the spinal cord from the back. And so uh, that would be really useful in a patient with a lot of cervical lordosis, whereas a, uh, if you go do a posterior approach on somebody with cervical kyphosis, you're not really helping out that patient too much. And what it does is it uh, you can enlarge the frame and from the posterior aspect, you can fuse posteriorly, very similar to how we fuse the lumbar and thoracic spine posteriorly. And then also they now have cervical disc replacements. Um, but if you would actually go a little bit more into depth into what an ACCF is, uh, I would learn something there. <laughs> yeah, so that stands for um, anterior cervical corpectomy and fusion with actually kind of going uh, remove the vertebral body. And it wasn't too much stuff on this when I was when I was reading on it, but you know, one of the notes and things that it was saying um, for patients that may undergo this ACCF or again anterior cervical um, corpectomy infusion uh, would be that if patients you know may have any uh, pathology that may be behind a vertebral body. Um, again, I haven't seen any of these done. Uh, it's something I read about, but mm-hmm. um, that is uh, ACCF, just so, you know, those that are here have heard what, what that is. Um, now, um, uh, yeah, so that's what ACCF is. Well, yeah, okay, yeah, that makes, I guess that makes sense, just because the, the big reason why you go anterior for a lot of the C-spine stuff is the spinal cord to dural sac ratio is very high, so it the cord actually fills up a lot of that space. And so if you try and go posterior and take a disc out, you're putting a lot of stress on the cord by having to move it one way or the other to get access to the disc. Whereas you don't have to do that if you go anteriorly. And then when you go down to the lumbar spine, you're, you don't have a cord to really be concerned about. You have nerve roots obviously to be concerned about, but those nerve roots are much more mobile and so doing a partial discectomy or a full discectomy from the posterior uh, portion in a lumbar spine is a lot more doable because you have a lot more freedom of movement of the uh, spinal elements compared to a, a cervical spine. And that was one thing I, I didn't quite understand until I was actually on my spine rotation because I was like, why can't we just do this from the back? And it's because a lot more stuff is tethered, uh, but that's just mm. a quick little blip in there i don't think it's really important for testing purposes but you might uh impress your attendings a little bit if you're uh, <laughs> hey we need to go anterior in the cervical spine and posterior in the lumbar spine blah blah blah. but um what are some just important things to keep in mind when you're thinking about doing or you're talking about a an acdf with either colleagues or patients yeah so this is um this associated or acds are associated with increased adjacent level radiculopathy as well as um, pseudoarthrosis so you know a patient may have had something done at the c um c6 c6 c7 and then they may come back with a radiculopathy at the next level it may be at the um, C8 level or C6 level. So um, just know that they have an increased adjacent level radiculopathy. They can also get a pseudoarthrosis. Um, but also ACDF is, is going to be associated with reduced post-operative neck pain. And in patients that are getting um, fusions greater than three levels, there are 
poor fusion rates when you try to fuse Guardian 3 levels through an ACDF alone. So those are some things to note. Um, you know, maybe a question, may not, not sure. But as, as long as you've yeah. uh, heard it once, and, and that's what we're here for. Um, so uh, continuing on, uh, what are some, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier that some of the different options we had as we talked about an ACDF, we briefly talked about an ACCF. Um, and we also mentioned a cervical disc replacement. So what are some uh, indications for a cervical disc replacement, which we know this is one of the uh, things that uh, we do that kind of helps to try to maintain some of the motion instead of fusing it. The, I feel like the history for a lot of orthopedic procedures um, goes initially towards uh, like ultimate stiffness and ultimate strength and then it starts to make its way into more kind of flexible means and the reason for this is like there were a lot of hip fusions done years and years ago for hip pathology especially in kids but now we're starting to do more like total hip arthroplasties in kids than we did years ago and it's kind of similar with the cervical disc replacement as we do a lot of fusions but we notice just like you said you get a lot of uh, adjacent level radiculopathy you can have pseudoarthroses you can have uh, other issues when you have one segment of the spine that is very stiff and one segment of the spine that's very flexible. And at that junction is where you run into problems. And so we've, we're now trying to get over that issue and do cervical disc replacements, which is uh, helping to get rid of the discogenic uh, back pain or neck pain or radiculopathy and keep maintaining motion in the spine so that the adjacent segment disease does not occur as frequently. And it's primarily used for radiculopathy and myelopathy, similar to what an ACDF is. You can do single or two level uh, disease. And the good part is it has uh, equivalent outcomes compared to an ACDF. And um, there has been reports out there of a reduced reoperation rate when you compare it to a one level ACDF for radiculopathy, just because uh, you, you're you not locking up a segment of the spine and causing adjacent segment disease as much. And uh, you do unfortunately get HO formation. And so these are the patients that you also want to consider doing the HO prophylaxis similar to uh, total hips and, and other aspects. So. Uh, cervical disc replacement, if it's something that interests you, obviously reach out to one of your spine attendings and talk to them about it because not a lot of people do it, but it, it seems pretty cool. I did a few of them in residency and it was a, a little bit different of a technique compared to just a traditional ACDF. So still good to be exposed to it while in residency, if you can be, um, yeah, I haven't seen any of these yet. Yeah, it's, uh, it's finicky from what I remember, and <laughs> it's tough to get the actual disc in the truly kind of center center position where you want it. Um, but uh, I mean, every patient that I did this on with our attendings, they, they seemed to like it. And he was starting to do more and more because he saw good outcomes with it. So uh, I think it does, they do well, but um, I think further further research will kind of uh, hammer that point home, see if it becomes more of a routine mainstream thing versus the ACDF, which is very highly popular 
uh, I know in especially ortho spine compared to cervical disc replacement. So um, now moving more posterior, uh, what are some important things to keep in mind about a posterior foraminotomy? Yeah. So instead of, um, instead of having adjacent level radiculopathy, this is actually going to be associated with an increase of the same level radiculopathy, again, with uh, posterior foraminotomies. And this is also associated with increased neck pain. So compared to ACDF, which is associated with increased adjacent level radiculopathy, pseudoarthrosis, as well as post-op neck pain, when you talk about posterior foraminotomy, this is going to be associated with an increase in the same level radiculopathy recurrence, as well as going to be associated with increased um, neck pain. Uh, this next question, I guess, is just one just for straight memorization, but just uh, I guess to say that we said it. Um, what are uh, what are some of the, or what are some soft tissue landmarks in their C spine correlation with the anterior approach? Yeah, so starting more cranial, C two is the angle of the mandible, C three is the hyoid bone, C four five is thyroid cartilage, uh, C five six is the uh, cricoid membrane. And then C6 is the carotid tubercle. Um, it's, I mean, especially in patients with fairly big necks, obviously it's difficult to really see or feel these uh, landmarks. And um, I know that it's much more common to have an anterior approach for the kind of middle uh, cervical spine, the like the C4 to C6 uh, range just cause then when you, I don't know, in, in my opinion, I could be 100% wrong on this, but like when you get higher <laughs> up, I just feel like you're running into a lot more crowded area when you're talking about the kind of the jaw and all of the musculature associated with the back of the, uh, uh larynx and all of that, rather than more in the middle of the spine, there's less, but, um, yeah, those things are, I think the most important ones are uh, thyroid cartilage for C4-5 um, and the carotid tubercle for C6. And um, then uh, we, we mentioned cervical spondylosis, I believe, at the very beginning, which is that chronic disc degeneration of the C-spine. Uh, but it doesn't just happen immediately. What's kind of the, the steps that you that you see this sort of presentation happen yeah so one of the first things that you'll get is you'll get collapse of that cervical disc and then what that does is it leads to the loss of the cervical lordosis because you know we all uh, typically have some cervical lordosis built in you know this is kind of the curve of our neck so when you have the cervical disc collapse you get the loss of the cervical um, lordosis which leads you to be a little bit more kyphotic which can lead to anterior disc osteophyte spurs um, so once you have that, next thing you'll get is you can get facet and uncovertebral uh, joint loading, which then can give you spondylitic changes in the foramina. And then when you have those spondylitic or de- degenerative changes in the foramina, um, that can cause to uh, cause nerve root compression because again you're you're getting you are getting um, decreased area um, for that nerve root, and you're getting a little bit compression, and you'll get radicular symptoms. Um, so that's just one way that you can get radicular symptoms as well as how you're getting degenerative. So it's one way of how spine degeneration can lead to also radiculopathy. Um, now, what are some, what are some causes of cervical myelopathy? 
And as we said before, though, yeah, yeah, the the myelopathy is the more spinal cord disease rather than radiculopathy is the nerve root disease. Uh, So cervical myelopathy is um, you can see it with cervical spondylosis um, where you get bulging osteophytes, ossified discs, you get a thickened ligamentum flavum. And these are all things that are going to be pushing on the actual spinal cord itself rather than the traversing nerve roots. Um, The OPLL that I mentioned earlier, that ossified posterior longitudinal ligament, uh, you can see it in rheumatoid arthritis, uh, obviously a tumor pressing on on the cord or tumor stemming from the cord itself, pressing on itself in a kind of enclosed area within the C-spine. And then uh, something that's more in the immunocompromised, uh, primarily going to be tested in uh, IV drug users or HIV patients is an epidural abscess leading to these uh, symptoms. And uh, mentioning these symptoms, what are these uh, symptoms of cervical myelopathy? Yeah, so... Symptoms of cervical myelopathy, you know, there's going to be things like finger finger clumsiness. You know, patients are going to say that they've just been um, dropping items lately. They're having trouble buttoning their shirt or, you know, if they're in the shower and they try to close their eyes when they're taking a the shower, they'll have problems with balance issues. That may be something that you may ask these patients about. Um, they may also have some tingling in their hands as well. And again, just to uh, plug another um uh, another plug in here, listen to uh, episode five with uh, Dr. Matthew Syriac on cervical myelopathy. If you want a deeper dive into um, some of these symptoms, but we will recover this in this review. But again, so some of these symptoms of cervical myelopathy, finger clumsiness, dropping items, um, trouble buttoning a shirt, balance issues, and tingling in the hand. And these are due to issues with the spinal cord itself. Again, um, so these are going to be spinal cord issues. Now, what are some, and we mentioned a little bit earlier, but just to continue on and for repetition's sake, what are some of the physical exam findings that can be seen in patients with cervical myelopathy? Uh, the primary one you're looking for is the Hoffman sign. And uh, uh, then you have the clonus and the hyperreflexia. And that hyperreflexia is uh, in more indicative of an upper motor neuron condition rather than a lower motor neuron, which is going to be the hyporeflexia. And and all of those are going to indicate a more spinal cord disease uh, rather than nerve root disease. And then uh, finger escape sign. And uh, what you'll see is because of the weak intrinsics of the hand uh, due to uh, this myelopathy, you'll see the small fingers start to abduct away from the hand as they attempt to hold uh, their fingers uh, in extension and tightly together, and that little finger will start to escape out out in abduction or uh, ulnar uh, translation there. And so, um, what is the? We, you talked about the natural history or the development of cervical spondylosis, but what's the uh, natural history of cervical myelopathy due to spondylosis? Yeah, so this is kind of that progressive stepwise decline. Um, That's going to be the most common natural history. So, you know, this is like where they're doing well for a good period of time and all of a sudden they do worse. And then they, again, they're doing just well for a good period of time and they do worse. It's not, it's not like the gradual decline. It's like they're doing good then boom. It's like a a quick drop and then they're doing well again and boom, straight back down and doing well again. So that's kind of that progressive um, stepwise decline. And, and when, 
uh, when patients have, you know, bad symptoms is associated with worse outcomes. So worse outcomes, again, are going to be associated with symptom severity uh, when they're being treated. So worse, the, the worst symptoms they have, worse outcomes, which, you know, makes sense if you have a degenerative spine with a lot of spinal cord um, compression that's being compressed for a long period of time. You can imagine that those may do a little bit worse, the worse that their symptoms are. Um, now we talked a little bit about looking at a looking at a C-spine X-ray in general. We're talking about you know looking at an AP and a lateral. But is there anything that we should note when we're evaluating for cervical myelopathy? Say, 67-year-old male is in the clinic, and you know you're in the tumor clinic. You don't know why he's here, but he's in your clinic, and and you got some C-spine X-rays of him, and you're trying to look to see if there's anything that you can find before you refer him to the spine doc. What are some things you're going to look for? Uh, first thing is going to be the amount of kyphosis on the lateral, um, looking at the uh, alignment of C2 to C7. And when we're talking about kyphosis of the cervical spine, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's truly kyphotic like the lumbar spine, although they can look like that. Uh, a kyphotic cervical spine can be just a straight cervical spine. It's just any amount of loss of normal lordosis is considered the kyphosis for the cervical spine. And um, then you'll see the degenerative changes with the joint space narrowing and the osteophytes, similar to any other degenerative changes of the other joints of the body. And then um, you can have congenital stenosis, whether that's just a, a failure formation of the foramen magnum versus uh, other aspects of the spine. Um, you can have a thick ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament leading to uh, compression. And uh, you're also getting the flexion and extension films to see, is this a, a flexible versus a rigid kyphosis? And a, a rigid kyphosis, you're going to, as they flex and extend, you're going to see only the motion through um uh, the atlas and the uh, uh, cranium uh, flexing down or extending, you're not going to see the C-spine going from kind of a more flexible hyperlordosis and extension to a more flexible uh, can, kind of uh, kyphosis for the uh, flexion. And then um, what are some of the things that you're going to look for in the MRI uh, when you're looking for cervical myelopathy? Yeah, so one of the things you look for, like kind of myelomalacia, so you look at the signal in the in the spinal cord itself to see if there's any, you know, abnormal signals within the cord itself, which could clue you in towards myelomalacia. You can also look for CSF effacement, which if you, I think you can appreciate it well if you look on the sagittals and you look for the bright white CSF fluid and you see the kind of that thinning of the CSF fluid. That's what you call CSF effacement, as well as any disc herniations. And you can, you know, look for a disc herniation on um, on a sagittal cut as well as an axial cut. And you can really look at them pretty well on axial cuts and you can see where the herniation is. Uh, but again, so some things to look for on MRI when you're evaluating for cervical myelopathy, you're going to look for any myelomalacia, any effacement of the cerebral spinal fluid as well as any disc herniations. Um, what is uh, another imaging modality that can be obtained if the patient cannot get an MRI, for example? Uh, those patients are going to get a, yeah, the, they're going to get a CT myelogram. And that's basically when uh, they're going through the CT scanner. So no uh, magnets involved, but they do get uh, die injected into their 
spinal column um, so that uh, it lights up around the spinal cord and the exiting nerve roots so that you can see uh, if something is being compressed via an osteophyte or disc herniation or um, like an ossified PLL. And because it's a CT scan, you may actually see the bony uh, degeneration or the bony aspects or the calcified aspects better than an MRI. So it, it does uh, have its use in practice for sure. And um, although more and more patients with pacemakers these days, they're all MRI compatible, but um, still, still something to know because they may throw a curveball on the OIT or the board exam for this. Um, Very true. And then, uh, just like we talked about with cervical radiculopathy undergoing non-op treatment, um, can you have patients with cervical myelopathy go non-op, or are these patients needing surgery? You can have um, some of them undergo non-op. You know, these are going to be like. The patients that don't have any functional impairment, you know, they don't have any malopathic symptoms. So they're, you know, no balance issues, um, no, no uh, clumsiness, nothing like that. Patients that don't have any radiculopathy, so no radiating symptoms or any signs of, um, of, of nerve root compression. And this is, you know, these are patients that just have kind of like radiographic cord compression only. And these are patients that, you know, require frequent follow-up um, because, again, we know that this, the natural history of this, uh, especially cervical myelopathy due to cervical spondylosis, which is degenerative spine disease, is, uh, is a stepwise decline. Now, on the other hand of it, what patients with cervical myelopathy should undergo <laughs> operative intervention? Uh, those are the ones with functional impairment because like you uh, discussed earlier, they have that stepwise uh, decline and hopefully you can prevent that next step in decline from happening because you're probably not going to make them better. They're not going to dramatically improve their symptoms if they're uh, uh, having issues, but at least you can stop the progression. Um, so uh, so yeah, you're looking at patients with functional impairment, those in severe pain, those that just, uh, continue to, to decline and, um, surgery does improve their overall outcomes and quality of life because they, they've stopped their stepwise decline. They've, uh, recovered what they can recover and they're kind of moving on with the rest of their life. So, um, it does still have its use, uh, with cervical myelopathy, uh, but it's, uh, something that patients need to be aware of that they may not recover everything that they've lost so far. Um, and what are some of the surgical treatment options uh, for patients with myelopathy? Yeah. So if we break it down into anterior posterior and anterior plus posterior procedures. So um, similar options to, you know, when we're talking about cervical radiculopathy. Um, so our anterior options is ACDF. Um, um, you know, anterior, um, why am I blanking on ACD? <laughs> discectomy infusion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anterior cervical discectomy infusion, uh, as well as a corpectomy, which is that ACCF. Uh, and then our posterior options, you have a laminectomy with or without a fusion. And you also have a laminoplasty. Laminectomy is where you remove the bone. Laminoplasty is where you kind of open it up. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. And you also have combined anterior and posterior procedures, which some patients may need. Um, so speaking about that, what is, um, what's the way to decide which procedure should be 
performed, you know, I've, um, and, you know, there's, there's some good images on, um, you know, kind of a good algorithm, I think, as far as test takes for test taking purposes on how to choose an answer. I don't know if all of this is completely 100 percent correlated correlated with real life, but I think for test taking answers, you know, how do you kind of decide what procedures should be performed? Uh, this goes back to what I was briefly talking about earlier with you're looking at the kyphosis and um, I mean, there's obviously other things that, that you're considering, but the kyphosis is a big thing when you're deciding whether you're going to go anterior, uh, posterior, or utilize both uh, procedures for the patient. And on tests, they will, they'll make it clear. They're not going to put some sort of borderline degree. And um, like if the kyphosis is greater than 10 degrees, um, you have to go anterior because um, if you, it's kind of tough to describe without directly showing it, but when you have a kyphosis, the spinal cord is being draped along the anterior aspect, uh, of the cervical spine, or I should say, I guess more correctly is it's being draped along the posterior aspect of the vertebral bodies, which is the most oh, yeah. anterior portion. And so because it's being draped over that, uh, portion of it, if you try and remove something posterior to that, it's still going to be draped over and compressed along the vertebral bodies. No amount of removing stuff posterior is going to uh, relieve the spine. And so you have to go anterior to remove what's pressing on the spine and to uh, kind of quote, jack up the vertebral bodies to create some cervical lordosis. So you're looking at if it's greater than 10 degrees, then they're not going to show you a spine that has nine degrees of kyphosis. Make it obvious. <laughs> yeah, they're going to make it obvious. They're going to show you a spine that has like 30 degrees of kyphosis, or it's going to have lordosis. They're not going to really go in between those. And then um, you're also going to measure what levels are being compressed. Is it one or two levels? Then you can consider an anterior approach with a discectomy or a corpectomy with uh, strut grafting infusion. Um, but if it's three plus levels with the kyphosis, you're probably going to do with greater than 10 degrees of kyphosis, you're probably going to do both um, because you have to fuse more than three levels, but you also have to re relieve the pressure on the spine. And so you're going to go anterior to decompress and then posterior to fuse. And then if there's less than 10 degrees of kyphosis or they're in lordosis, then you can consider just going posterior only. And um, what's one important thing to consider when you're treating patients with kyphosis? I mean, this is a, the same thing that you were just talking about, you know, so when you have rigid kyphosis, it doesn't allow that spinal cord to float back with the posterior approach only, which is literally what you were just saying. You know, you have the you have the spinal cord that is draped over the posterior aspect of the anterior um, of the vertebral body. So if you only go posteriorly, it doesn't, you know, the spinal cord still stays draped over. That's why you go anteriorly, try to recreate some of that lordosis and allow that spinal cord to uh, float back. But if you only do a posterior approach, that is, um, you don't get that. I hope you all are learning something from these spine talks. I hope you all 
are again you know coming away with something we are hoping that this helps and thank you for listening to yet another episode of the nailed it ortho podcast please go ahead and tell a friend that would help out a lot in us getting the word out again it's just it's free knowledge that's all this is and we are still working on an oit podcast companion book as you all can imagine it is a lot of information so it takes a while to uh, put together especially while being a resident but nonetheless stay tuned we're working on that so go ahead and hit the subscribe button and we'll see you all next week